Good morning, good to see you. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we will read verses 1 through 8. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And may God bless the reading of his word. Father, we commit to you the exposition of the word, and we pray that you may especially guide the one who speaks and us who hear. We pray to you especially for our children, for our young people, and for ourselves, in light of what this text has to say. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I am very conscious of the audience here present and the conscious and conscious of the audience who may be online. I'm conscious that we are in church, but I want you to know that I've had nightmares over today's sermon because it is one of those subjects that is kind of difficult to speak about. A CDC report from 2017 says that an estimated, and I'm going to be reading the same things you have on your slides there, an estimated 55% of male and female teens have had sexual intercourse by age 18. California report some years ago posted by Wikipedia reads, the average age of the first sexual intercourse in the United States is around 16.8 for males and around 17.2 for females. And the following stats are not fun to read either. They are old stats, as a matter of fact, not too updated. Some years ago, 40 million American people regularly visit porn sites. 35% of all of the internet downloads are related to pornography. One-third of porn watchers are women. 20,258 users are watching pornography every second. 3,075.64 cents is spent on porn 
every second on the internet. 88% of the scenes in porn films contain acts of physical aggression. One in five mobile searches are for pornography. And if you do the math of that 30,075, it comes to 60, 265 million a day, $10 billion a year of internet porn revenue industry. Why do you bring those things to church? Because we have two options. Option A, we pretend that my hobby, my little boys, my little girls, my teenagers, my wife, nobody in this church has any problem with that. That's option A. Option B, we take that reality of the world we live in and face it with our Bibles open and with a cross before us. You and I have already made a choice. This is not like, from now on you have those two choices. No, no, we've already made a choice. We either pretend, or we say, this is real. It was real in Paul's world. It is my world, and the world I'm raising my children, my grandchildren, my students, my nephews, my nieces, Whatever is your circle, yourself, this is our world. What do you want to do about it? Pretend or face it with our Bibles open? I offer that we do it with our Bibles open and with a cross before us. It's not a problem exclusive to us. Thessalonica was a Greek port city. If you've been to those Places where you can see Greek sculpture and painting and be exposed to it, you know that it is a very aggressive or was a very aggressive, erotic, in your face sexual culture. And so was the Roman culture of Paul today, and so has been culture all the time. God gave Adam and Eve a creation ordinance. Be fruitful and multiply. Guess what? With that creation ordinance came the sexual instinct that is made for propagation and multiplication. The devil came in and he thwarted what God made for good. And now we're dealing with a mess of something that is as strong as any survival instinct we may have, which is the sexual instinct. We either face sexuality biblically, we suppress it, pretend, and then fall into the aberrations that have fallen those who do not face sexuality biblically. And we don't need to go into any more details. I'm aware of my audience. All I want to do with you is look at our text, and from our text, deal with three things. A motivation for sexual purity, because my title is Sexual purity in a sex-driven age, which was Paul's age, but it's also our age. A motivation for sexual purity. God's pleasure in our own benefit. That's a motivation. An instruction about sexual purity. This is the will of God. It's black and white. 
than a warning or a method and a warning. Self-control. Let's deal with the motivation first. I wish I could finish this in less than 40 minutes. I'm not so sure, but I'm going to finish what I have to say. I'm not going to cut this, so apologize, please, if the oven is working and your meal is overcooked. (laughs) The motivation is sexual purity pleases God and it benefits us. That's a motivation. Finally, brethren, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please the Lord, just as you are doing, do it more. <laughs> One person may say, well, I don't care about pleasing God. That's your prerogative. I could care less what God thinks about sexual purity. I'm a liberated person. That's fine. That's your prerogative. I'm just telling you, <laughs> this is the will of God. It pleases God. And Paul, when he writes, he assumes that his audience, mainly comprised of Christians, was interested in pleasing God. So when we talk about sexuality, the first thing we put in our faces is, it is about pleasing the Lord. Sexual purity is about doing what is agreeable to God. And the text presumes that Christians want to do that. If you don't want to do that, then perhaps you may challenge yourself and question, am I a Christian? Because that's one of the first desires this Spirit puts in a person. I want to be pleasing to God. Secondly, the motivation is based on grace. It's not, a, it's not a motivation based on threats. It's based on grace. Paul says, I implore, I beseech, literally, I pray and exhort you. It's like he's saying, I'm praying to you, I'm beseeching you, I'm imploring you, and also exhorting you in the Lord Jesus, that you walk in sexual purity. So Paul is actually making an ardent plea, a passionate beseeching in Christ. It is like when a mother tells their hyperactive boy or girl. (laughs) Susie, Johnny, please get off that tree. Because you see this high voltage line ahead of, in front of them, or or on top of their heads. And you just, please, 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 come out, come out. There's There's a high voltage cable wire there. That's what Paul seems to be doing. I implore you, but I also exhort you. I'm commanding you to walk in purity, walk in what is pleasing to the Lord. It's similar to the Romans 12, 1 and 2 language, because of the mercies of God, because of the kindness of God, because of the goodness of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice to Him. It is the old phrase of gospel imperatives are based on the great gospel indicative. I am a, an anti-moralistic preacher. I have been accused to my honor and credit. I wish I were accused more of that. To be kind of hyper-grace. Fine, accuse me of that. Now I cannot remove the imperatives from the New Testament because the New Testament is filled and packed with commandments. Now those commandments in the New Testament to believers are based on a great gospel indicative. Jesus already paid. 
because of that, because he already paid, I implore you to walk pleasing to him. Sexual purity is not required to be more loved by God. We know that. We know that when, when we sin sexually, we feel the grieving of the Spirit. We feel the, the distance, the, the, the metal in, in the ceiling for our prayers. And we feel, well, God is not loving me now because I sinned. No, if you're a Christian, you cannot be more loved by God than what you are. If you are in Christ, if I understood what this rabbi, this converted rabbi wrote, there is not an, a, a positron, a neutron, or whatever, a quark of love, if such a thing exists from God, that can be added to the one he has already for you, because you are in Christ. So this is not about moralism. This is about kindness received. And when I meditate on the kindness and the love received and the love of which I am a subject of, it removes a lot of the bite of temptation. Because I don't, I don't have to sin. I'm already loved. And if I sin, I still have an advocate before the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins and for the sins of the world. The propitiation, the one who removes God's wrath. So that has to be clear and is in the text. Paul says, I implore you in the Lord Jesus. You may say, what's in it for me? Okay, I get it. Pleasing God. He loves me. Awesome. What's in it for me if I am sexually pure? I'm a young person. I'm 14, 15, 16, 17, whatever. I'm heading into that direction or even younger. What's in it for me? Well, there's a lot for you. Susan Cross, a PhD from Whitbourne, wrote in Psychology Today, to my knowledge, is not a Christian magazine, she wrote, people who engaged in more hookups, she made a study on college students, people who engaged in more hookups had greater psychological distress than those who did not. This is what an unbeliever PhD states of a study she made. She added, college students who engaged in casual sex reported lower, level of, lower levels of self-esteem life satisfaction and happiness compared to those who had not had casual sex. Also, they had higher distress scores as indicated by levels of depression and anxiety. This is what the world says about it. So what's in it for me? That. And I'm not even quoting the Bible. Now let me just quote the Bible for the sake of it. Proverbs 31 reads in verse 2. Listen, my son, listen, my son of the womb. That's, that's very powerful. I don't know if your mother has ever called you that. Your Hispanic hijo, hija de mis entrañas. When a mom says that, you say, oh boy, I'm either in trouble or who knows what's coming. Well, that's what Proverbs is saying. Son of my womb, listen, my son. Three times, listen. Listen, you who are the answer to my prayers. 
Do not give your strength to women. Do not give your vigor to that which ruin kings. And this appears in the Proverbs of Solomon. The king who was ruined because of his sexual immorality. Now that's the motivation. What's the instruction? Verse 2. Sexual purity is the will of God. Verse 2 reads, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from porneian, from sexual immorality. The word instruction is the word parangeia, and I'm purposely sticking more to my notes than usual, and it's on purpose. I don't want to go off on a tangent here, because I'm aware of the audience. So I apologize if not not looking at you as much as I like to look at you when I preach. The word parangelia is commandment, it's instruction, it's an injunction. But again, Paul says, I'm instructing you through the Lord Jesus. Paul seems, seems insisting or persisting in, I'm teaching you in Christ. I don't want to moralize you. I'm not here to scare you. I'm not here to tell you, you kids, do this. No, we're all dudes. We're all dudes, passe, out of shape. We don't know about life. We know I was 14, 2, and 15. So I know exactly how you think. You don't know how I think. Because you've never been 58. But I've been 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and all the years up to here. And I know, I know how it rolls. We're, we're idiots. I remember when my mother told me that she kissed my father. I said, what, mom? You kissed dad? Like kisses, like in the movies? And she said, yes. And I was scandalized. Because I could not believe that kissing was invented before my age. I know how it rolls. But I'm not appealing to you as an old dude. I'm appealing to you with Paul. These are the instructions of the Lord. And I'm giving them to you through Christ. He appealed to Christ as the mediator, as the dispenser, as the authority and imprimatur of his instruction. And sexual purity, beloved, is black and white. There are some adults today who were young people like you who were raised in these walls, in Cornerstone. And now they are deconstructionist Christians. And they are deconstructing Christianity. They resent the cult they were brought in. They resent, they resent the oppression and the legalism and all of these things. And they resent them. And now they are rereading the Bible. One of them divorced and hooked up with a guy, not even remarried. But they, she's rereading the Bible. Now she's instructing us how to read the Bible. Well, you can read whatever you want, but sexual purity is black and white. You can say, you can read whatever you want. You start in the New Testament and move all the way up. From the get-go, tell the Gentiles to abstain from sexual immorality. And if there are Jews in town, nah, they don't let them eat, eat blood and that kind of stuff and things sacrificed to idols. But wherever they are, remind them to abstain from sexual immorality. And that repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats. Because it is black and white. 
This is not subject to interpretation. Well, in those days, you know, fornication meant, fornication is porneian from where we get pornography. And it is what it is. And I'm being guided because I'm in church. This was written by a converted rabbi whose frame of reference was the Old Testament, the Tanakh. And for the Tanakh, sexual immorality is summarized in Leviticus 18, and it's pretty much homosexuality, same sex, fornication, adultery, sex with beasts. You say, what? It's in the Bible, yeah. It's in the Bible. Men lying with men, women lying with women. It's in the Bible. It's old, it's old as dirt. It's not something of this age that we need to review because the Christians of those days didn't know exactly what it meant. For this rabbi, he knew exactly what it meant. The same thing it means to you and I. Things were not invented when we were born. So, this is a good use for a third use of the law. For those of you who are theologically inclined, remember Luther said the law has three uses. One of them is a curb. It prevents people from going crazy and going wild and it restricts evil. The other use is a mirror. It makes me see myself, see my sin. I see the perfect picture of God's righteousness. I see myself falling. I run to Christ. That's what he argues in Galatians. But he says, well, the law also is a guide. It teaches Christians how to please God. Because at the end of the day, the law is what God is pleased with. It is his heart. This is what I want you to do. So here's a good use, or a good third use of the law. And then thirdly, we find the method for sexual purity. I wish there were another one, but the method is none other than self-control. And it comes with a warning. Verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. That's self-control. Not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger. That's a warning. In all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. I'm aware of a translation problem with this text. Some of you use the Bible, Reina Valera, 1960. If you use it and you read it, the text kind of reads, let every one of you hold his wife in holiness and honor, not in passion like the Gentiles. Because they take the verb that means to have possession of his body, gain or have control of, and then they use the word vessel for wife. And and those translators use that. And then some commentators and pastors even dare to regulate that in marriage, sex ought not to be passionate, not not to have eroticism. It should be something holy. Imagine that. Wife, time to be intimate. But we cannot do it in passion. Really. Some of them are very famous. I could give you names, but I won't because I don't want to be a stumbling block. Others say, no, no, that means that the way to find a wife is not through hooking up, sexual intercourse. And that's not the way you should find a wife. That's so away from the context. The text means what what is translated in the ESV. I think the NAS translates it that way also. Have control of your own body. Proverbs says, better is the man who 
controls himself than he who conquers a city. You control yourself with whatever it is, alcohol, food, sex, you name it. You control that, you're better than Napoleon or than any great conqueror in the past. That's what Proverbs says. That's what he's talking about. Now let me make a practical application about what the Bible has to say, and this is going to be very quick and fast about sex. And of course, when the Bible speaks of sex, it speaks of sex in marriage. Because it is assumed, it is prescribed, exemplified from the Garden of Eden. What does the Bible have to say about that? Well, it says in Hebrews 13.4 that the marriage bed is blessed. So husband, wife, what happens in your marriage bed is blessed. It's not dirty. It's not evil. It's not, oh, be careful. Because you... I know. I have three friends. Two friends. They are very close. And uh, they are pastors. And the third one is the older dude. And one day he published something on Facebook of we should be careful how we handle our wives and not have passions with them. So one of my friends goes to the other friend and says, what did such and such mean by that? And the older said, don't worry about it, he's a sick man. That's a good answer. Blessed is the marriage bed. And also that marriage bed, that sex in marriage, Solomon calls it in Canticles, a secret garden. That is none of anybody's business. It is a marriage bed between husband and wife, and it is treated as a secret, honorable garden that belongs to two persons. And it's not the subject of anybody's daring to attempt to regulate what happens there. Thirdly, sex in marriage is a picture of unity. The two shall become one flesh. And Paul uses that argument. Both to rebuke the Corinthians when they went to prostitutes, but also to exhort the Ephesians about how men ought to treat their wives. It's a picture of Christ and the church. Sex in marriage is a picture of redemption. (gasps) Yes, yes, it is. And God made it for that. And the pleasures of sex in marriage are to remind you of the goodness of your Savior. And of the love of your Savior. And of the unity that you have with your Savior. If you have problems in that area, seek counsel. If you guys are Christians, I encourage you to find Christian counseling. But, but find counsel because it's like, like doctors say, nothing should hurt. If, you, if, if a finger hurts, go to a doctor that deals with that. If some kind of exercise when you're doing your abdominals or whatever, if something hurts, something is not working right. So if you have problems in that area in your life, seek counsel. Maybe medical, maybe psychological, maybe pastoral, maybe theological. Just find help. Don't stay there. Because you don't have to. If you're single, sex is not for outside of marriage. And I don't have, I don't know how to write it, how to say it, or how to explain it. If you're burning, Paul says, get married. And if you cannot get married for whatever reason, my heart breaks. I was a single Christian for 25 years, and I married virgin. I know what it feels. I still have a nightmare that I'm single in my house with my age, living with my mom. And I'm still single. <laughs> She's a witness. 
sometimes I wake up crying. Crying. So what's going on? What's going on? Oh, you're here. And then I go like, oh, you're here. And I hug her. <laughs> I know what he feels. But that's what the Bible says. I cannot change it. Sex is not for you. And sex is not to be practiced alone either. It's for two. If you're burning with lust, get married. But abstain from sexual immorality. And Paul gives a reason there. Very powerful. He says that no one may cause harm to his brother in this. Do you know why? Because our private lives trickle down to the body. Men, your private lives trickle down to your wives and to your family, even if you think it is secret. What we do secretly affects this body of believers. This little church is not going to be any more holy corporately when we gather than what you and I are privately when nobody's watching. Get it in your heads. Don't harm your brothers in this. Remember Achan, remember Ananias and Sapphira, remember those who ate the Lord's table without sanctifying it in 1 Corinthians 11. Whatever we do in private trickles down publicly. And the conclusion, it's a long conclusion by the way. Paul said finally in chapter 4 and he kept writing. So, okay, I'm in good company. Conclusion is a sober warning. Verse 6, second part of the verse. Because the Lord is the avenger, or is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but for holiness, therefore whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul says, guys... This is the instruction of the Lord. You may say, I couldn't care less. Fine. It's your prerogative. I'm just telling you. This is the instruction of the Lord. This comes from Him. This is not about being a Reformed Baptist and 1689 Confession and being infralapsarian or being a Calvinist or believing in limited atonement and being an amillennialist. No, this is not about that. This is black and white from God. Abstain from sexual immorality, period. That's it. Now, I am aware that hellfire and brimstone has done nothing to curb sexual immorality. Go to Europe. Go to the continent where hellfire brimstone was paramount by the Roman Catholic Church. And go see them today. It doesn't work. Come to America and see the rampant sexual immorality of our youth and our adults who were raised with Sunday school. Hellfire brimstone does nothing to curb sexual immorality. If you are trying that at home, I'm telling you, you'll fail miserably. The law has no power against sin. Only the gospel is the power of God against sin. Get it there. Nothing else works. Now, having said that, 
I have to tell you that regardless of what you think of Revelation 21.8 and the lake of fire and brimstone, which I believe is an allegory to describe damnation, that's my personal belief. I don't think it's literal. But if you believe it's literal, that's fine. We're not going to argue over my views on Revelation. But what I'm going to tell you is that Revelation 21 states, the sexually immoral will have their portion in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It's in the Bible. Ephesians 5.5, 5, to mention another one, because there are many. For of this you can be sure. That scares the wit out of me when I read this, you can be sure of this in the Bible. It's like, the book is inspired, but let me put it on steroids. Of this you can be sure, says Paul. No immoral, impure, literally, pornos, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So the stuff is serious. And I want to transmit it with the seriousness it has. There are more texts, but I just dropped at those two. And Paul says, God is an avenger of these things. I don't know if you're like me. I hope you're not like me. I really <laughs> hope you're like Christ. And whatever reflection of Christ I have is really bad that you get a better one. But... More than once I've been on my kitchen counter and I've told the Lord, I know it is wrong. I know that vengeance is yours. I know that I'm not supposed to avenge myself. But it would be nice if you did this to such and such. And then I said, no, 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 forgive me. No, no, I shouldn't do that. Please forgive me. Right? Because sometimes you really want to. But no, God is the one who we have to Leave room to his wrath. That's a scary thought. Paul says in Hebrews, it is a horrendous thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is horrendous. It is so horrendous that I purposely avoid thinking about it when I'm at airports or at crowds. Because it drives me crazy. It is horrendous. Paul says God is an avenger of these things. God will avenge the innocence that has been robbed of children who have been abused. And I was abused. And in the middle of the night, I've asked God if they are alive, please. Have mercy on them. It is such a scary thought that even when I want to get even and would like to encounter them and just hit them with everything I have, when this thought ceases, I says, no, no, no. If they are alive, please have mercy on them. Let them not fall into your hands. But God is the avenger of those who abuse children. God is the avenger of those who are sex traffickers. When I go to my daughter's house in Virginia, I-81, 
They've told me, you see that road you're coming in? You see all those trucks? Highest sex trafficking thoroughfare in the U.S. God is an avenger of those sex traffickers. Those who abuse women and young girls and exploit them for their porn sites and for their porn films. God is the avenger of pimps, sex traffickers, consumers, and sexual predators. It is a scary thought. And then Paul says, and remember believers, you have the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. You cannot lose him. It's yours forever. You've been sealed, but we can grieve him. Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. I say something to you wives in the context of this audience. Do not expose your husbands to sexual immorality by manipulating them with sex. Be careful. Be careful what you do to your men by your neglecting them sexually. Read 1 Corinthians 7. Paul addresses that in marriage. Husbands, do not expose your wives by neglecting them and mistreating them and abusing them. Don't. We have to protect one another in that department because marriage was given for procreation and also for recreation and also for taming and curbing sexual temptation. That's what the book says. Be careful if you're married. You have that stewardship. Young people and children, please wait. Please wait. I waited 25 years and 11 months. <laughs> I can't be more exact than that. 11 months and 12 days. My wife waited the same, 24, and about 11 months and a half. There are a few things that I can say with authority. Here's one. You will not have regrets you will not have thoughts. And even when you have nightmares, there's no other person in your erotic dreams because you only know one. This morning I told my wife a prayer that I pray frequently. So I pray two things. That I don't have another barber, because she's my barber, <laughs> and that I do not know any other woman intimately. Because if I do, it means only two things. That you died and I had to remarry or that I committed adultery. So if you're a young person, you're a child, please wait. Promise you that you will not regret it. I hang out a lot with my friends from high school. I hang out with people who are not church people. I can tell you, there is a blessing beyond description in following the Lord in this area. As tempting as it looks. Let me end with two notes. One, a couple of quotes. One of them comes from Marianne Layden. 
co-director of the Sexual Trauma and Psychology Program at the University of Pennsylvania Center for Cognitive Therapy, Jeepers. But what I'm saying is that she's not uh, Elizabeth Elliot, right? She's not the, the lady who writes books, Christian books that your mother reads. No, this is another unbelieving person, to my knowledge, who's writing as a scientist. She calls porn the most concerning thing to psychological health that I know of existing today. Then she added, pornography addicts have a more difficult time recovering from their addiction than cocaine addicts, since coke users can get the drug out of their system, but pornographic images stay in the brain forever. I don't know if she is the one who also says that pornography releases opioids in the most powerful possible way to your brain. Because it, it comes directly from yourself. You're not even consuming it or buying it. Lynn, I'm sorry for the word. Don't screw around with it. Don't. Because it's poison and it can kill you and destroy your marriages. These ears have had to counsel young men in their 20s who, can, who had a hard time engaging their wives sexually because they were pornography addicts. And I was talking to Christians. I don't think they were unbelievers. And they were miserable. This is not your Sunday school Noah waving goodbye from the ark. This is as real as it gets. <laughs> but I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to stop with gospel hope for those who blew it. Because we've blown it, haven't we? I know a very famous pastor who once proclaimed that he never, ever had any temptation or issue with pornography or with sexual images. He says, wow, wow, better than Paul. Paul said he was sold into bondage. And he, did, he did things he didn't want to do, but this guy was better than that. Awesome. Good for him. God bless him. For the rest of us, if you've blown it, sexual immorality is not the unpardonable sin. You cannot commit the unpardonable sin. None of us can. Jesus is not here casting out demons in his fleshly ministry, so we cannot commit that sin. So if you've blown it, the gospel has hope for you. And has forgiveness for you. And if you've blown it and you are in Christ, guess how does God see you? Just as if you'd never sinned. Do you remember Pastor Wheeler's acronym? He got it from someone else on what does justified meant? Justified, never sinned. And then he added, and always obeyed. So if you've blown it and you are in Christ, Guess what? Clean slate. Better than a clean slate. You know what your slate is packed with? 
Jesus' perfect holiness. That's the gospel. Oh, but that will, will make people sin more. No, it won't. If they know the power of the gospel, they will be released from the guilt and the depression and the anxiety that sinks people more and more into the sin. Because you know how the devil works. You're on a diet, and what do you get more than any time? Hunger. You said, I'm going to cut my carbs. And what do you smell? You smell the bakery that is five miles away from your house. That's the way sin works. We laugh at it, but we say jeepers. Why has to be that way? It is that way. You're drowning in guilt, in pain, in anxiety, in fear. You go back to sexual sin looking for dopamine to get out of it. And it only sinks you more and more. That's why it's called the deceitfulness of sin. But once somebody tells you, listen, if you're in Christ, your slate is clean. All you have is the obedience of Christ. And you see how that chain falls off. As the old hymn says, My chains fell off. My heart was set free. I woke, started to walk, because the dungeon was set with light. That's the way the gospel works. And the final thought, the Bible says that there's going to be prostitutes in heaven. Jesus said that. He told the Pharisees, the prostitutes will go before you to the kingdom of heaven. They heard the preaching of John the Baptist and repented. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul said to the Corinthians, homosexuals, immoral, fornicators, adulterers, such were some of you, he said. But you have been washed. You have been cleansed. You have been forgiven. So there's going to be a lot of homosexuals and prostitutes and immoral people and adulterers and fornicators and abusers in heaven. But you know who's not going to be in heaven? Religious hypocrites. Those will not be. Jesus called them, when you make a follower, a proselyte, you make that proselyte twice a child of hell than what you are. Woe is you. Better to be found in the company of a forgiven sexual sinner than to be found in the company of a holier-than-thou religious bigot. May God bless his word and forgive me for where I blew it please do that Lord and have mercy on us and have mercy on our children in Jesus name